Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. song was entitled, Come All You Weary. And uh, appropriate action enough for the day considering the weather, but picked it for another reason. Um, Jesus says, come, to the, come all you who are weary, and uh, he'll take care of our load. 2020, it's an election year. I'm already weary. Now, as a general rule uh, at this church, we do not discuss or get into politics except where it touches on things of Scripture. But there has been such an injection over recent years as we have candidates who are quoting Scripture left and right, even though it's never been a part of their life, others being upheld as um, either a Savior and Messiah or as a demon or something else. And so we're going to dive into this a little bit today. And just to get things sorted out right off at the start, I'm just going to ask in a minute that we all stand. I'm going to ask Republicans, if you come over here, Democrats, I want you over here, Libertarians, Socialists in the parking lot. Um, <laughs> now it's become so divisive that even something like that, someone can read into and I'll get a nasty email saying, you just... Um, it broke out recently with an op-ed written by Mark Galley, who's an editor for Christianity Today, a publication that was started by Billy Graham. And he made a case for uh, supporting the impeachment and removal of the president. There was a very harsh reaction back to that from other Christians attacking him personally and, and all that went with that. Then somebody wrote an article in response to it that actually engaged the points he made. So he makes a case for removal. This other Christian makes a case for not removing. They engaged each other in a shockingly reasonable conversation dealing with the exact issues rather than just attacking and tearing people down. It's become such a pattern today. Some of you remember the old Saturday Night Live sketch that used to involve Jane Curtin and Chevy Chase where Jane Curtin would offer this very reasonable, thoughtful statement or opinion on the day, and then it would go to Chevy, and you're waiting for the, I think it was called point-counterpoint, and his response right off the bat every time was, Jane, you ignorant slut, and then we just tear her down. And we laughed at that, but that's become common today, that it's no longer funny because this is our discourse, even amongst Christians, with other Christians. We dehumanize, then we demonize, and then we destroy 
We've done this with warfare over the years. They weren't Japanese, they were Japs. They weren't Germans, they were Krauts. They weren't Vietnamese, they were gooks. We dehumanize, we demonize, and then we destroy them. So anyways, uh, Mark Galley offers this one thought, whether you agree with it or not. Um, Wayne Grudem, who is a theologian, gave a thoughtful response back. Wayne Grudem, not to be confused with the NFL Raiders coach, John Gruden, totally different person, okay? He offers this reasonable counterpoint to it. <clears throat> and so, as looking in regards to how do we handle these conversations? Everybody has an opinion, and one of the writers in the process likened opinions uh, and positions to flags. And so Republicans have a flag, Democrats have an opinion, Libertarians have an opinion, Socialists have an opinion. Old people have an opinion. Millennials, they have bunches of opinions. <laughs> Everybody has an opinion. Everyone plants their flag. One writer was saying we have all these opinions and there's nothing wrong with that. We should have strong opinions. But that should not negate a table to come to for conversation and sharing what those opinions are. It is never within the Christian realm to dehumanize anyone, let alone a brother or sister in Christ, nor to demonize them, nor to destroy. This is not a Christian approach. And so as we process this, we're going, how did Jesus deal with the politics of his time? Now in one way it was simple. They didn't have a vote. They had no franchise. Um, and so the real choice was usually you would say just rebellion or submission. But that's not totally accurate. The reality was that, that while they didn't have a franchise, politics were as much a part of their warp and woof of life as it is of ours. It was very much a part of what they dealt with. In Luke chapter 13, we see that Jesus has just begun a discourse on the kingdom of God. He could have chosen any other language. He could have talked about the family of God, the community of God. He talked about the kingdom of God. That's a politically loaded term. As he begins to discuss this kingdom that is not of this earth, but that eventually will, will fill the entire earth, he finishes this discourse about this. And in the 31st verse of chapter 13 of Luke, it says that at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. Herod was the political leader of the area he was in at the time. He operated under Rome, so Rome controlled all of Israel, but they had several client kings um, who they allowed to have uh, some degree of autonomy within their realm as long as they served the Roman interest. And so um, Herod was one of those. And so you had Herod, you had the Roman authorities, you had um, specific actual political parties, you could say, even of that time period that Jesus would have had to encounter. You just saw one of them in this passage of Scripture, Pharisees. 
Pharisees had their own specific view and opinion of how things should operate. And they stood generally, as much as you see them despised and attacked oftentimes, the reality was in Jesus' time, they were the populist party. They were known as the party of the people. They, they, they really um, were, were embraced by the majority of the common folk. You had another group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were for the wealthy and the elite. You see, throughout time and history, you've always had a party that says they're for the people, another party that is basically oriented towards wealth and towards the elite. It just happens in every society. It plays to one position or the other. You also had a group of people called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were the third level of, uh, third grouping of, of Judaism, and the Essenes were the ones who actually did the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they're out in Qumran, out in the desert, and they had really opinions. They had opinions that everybody else was wrong and they were absolutely right, but rather than deal with that, they said, we're opting out, and so they just walked out into the desert and said, you know what, there's gonna be an apocalypse, God's gonna wipe everything out, and then we're gonna rise, okay? Meanwhile, forget all of you guys. It's thought possibly John the Baptist was one that had been trained by the Essenes as that voice crying out in the desert. So you had three primary branches of, of, of politics within Judaism, separate from Herod and Rome. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. There was another grouping of people, though, and I'll try to walk you through this. It begins actually, in fact, Jesus was affected by politics back at his birth. You've read the passage, or at least if nothing else, you've heard Linus read it. Luke chapter 2, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Just imagine I have my blanket with me, okay? This was the first census that took place while Corinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. There was a census being done at the time of Jesus' birth. The purpose of the census was because they were going to enact a tax. The tax was a head tax. It wasn't like an income tax. So it didn't matter. It wasn't based on your income. Everyone played a, paid a flat fee by the people in your household. And it came to roughly, in today's uh, money, it would be roughly $100 a person and to be paid by, for it by, uh, with a single coin. And so this was enacted that to do this, they needed a, a, a census. So the time of Jesus' birth, they're doing the census. This is what pushes uh, um, uh, Joseph to go to Bethlehem to register for this tax. Well, at the same time that this is being offered, people react to it violently. They don't want to be taxed. That's a shocking thing, I know, but they did not want to be taxed. Not only that, but it represented Rome's authority over them. It was viewed as an act of slavery. And so the, town, the whole countryside went up in flames. One guy particularly, a guy named Judas of Galilee, leads this revolt. And it's very bloody, and it's finally repressed after a lot of violence and difficulty with it. But he ends up forming what Josephus, one of the old writers, says is a fourth um, uh, school of Judaism or of politics. These guys are known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were zealous for God and for country, and they were going to take down anything that basically didn't stand for God. Now, the zealots heavily influenced the political realm of their day. It's a revolt that happens at the time of Jesus' birth that's bloodily put down. They continue to have sway, though, and influence to such a degree that um, uh, in 66 AD, they launch a revolt that triggers Rome's response that finds the entire country devastated. 
and all are scattered, and Israel's are scattered to the wind, and Israel ceases to become a nation in 73 AD due to the zealots and their influence until 1948. The last stand of the zealots after Jerusalem is dismantled and destroyed is on a mountain called Masada, where ultimately they all commit suicide rather than be taken by the Roman soldiers of the time. That is the end route of the zealots. But it came as a result of the taxation that they were dealing with. Now, there's something else for where we're going you'll need to understand as we brought into this. And so I've got a picture right now of the temple and of something else. And once again, I forgot to bring my laser pointer. So if you put that up there, and if you will just be able to see, um, this is the Temple Mount area. That is the uh, um, Holy of Holies, that larger building inside, the outer courts there. And where Jesus would have taught would have been in these outer courts out here. And then you see this, this structure, this, this fortress of four towers. Does everyone see that? You got that? Okay, that is the Fortress Antonia. And this fortress, as you see, dominates um, the temple area. Now, Pontius Pilate represents Rome. He's the political power for Rome. And Pontius is not really a very terribly bright guy. He, he is, likes to stick it to people. He's not terribly good at a lot of things. He knows that the Jews have an issue with graven images. He knows this. But despite that, he allows a military unit to be posted in the Fortress Antonia. He brings them in at nighttime. So nobody knows that they're until the morning when they wake up. And the thing that was a problem was this particular unit had done something meritorious in the Roman process that had gotten them a unit citation. And the unit citation was that they would carry an image of the emperor on their standard, their military standards. And so the people of Jerusalem wake up in the morning to find these standards of this unit in the Fortress Antonio overlooking the temple area, bearing images of the emperor. And they immediately go into a massive riot. Do you know why? The reason why is because the emperor claims to be God. And there's an image. Anyone read the Ten Commandments recently? What are one of the commandments? You'll have no graven images. And so the Jews would not put the image of a person anywhere, even to this day. I don't think any of the Jewish coins have a representation. Their banknotes do, but not their coins. And so to them, to have an image of someone claiming to be God in this fortress overlooking the holy area was horrendous for them. They react violently. They besiege Pilate's house. He tells them to go away. He's going to kill them all. They won't go away. So he gathers them into a stadium area. He has all the soldiers draw his swords. And he says, I'm going to kill you if you don't stop this now and go away. They all stop, bare their heads and say, do it. We would rather die than to see this continue on and this defamation happen. Now, um, Pilate realizes, okay, I, if I kill all these people, i got to explain that to somebody. And so he backs off, and he pulls the images down out of the situation, okay? So if you have all of that understanding now, now we're going to walk and understand the, the importance of the taxes, how violent people reacted to it, the imagery, all of that. It's with that now that we go to Matthew chapter 22. 
In Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, And the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. I didn't mention the Herodians. The Herodians weren't any religious sect at all. They were purely political. They supported the household of Herod and Rome's policies. They were Jews that did that. They were, they were just not, a, they were secularists in the extreme. They would have been in no way in association with the Pharisees. These guys would have been opposites of the spectrum deeply religious for the people and all this, don't care about the people, care about Rome, and no religious consideration whatsoever. Deeply in conflict. So what is it that they're doing together? They sent their disciples along with the Herodians. There's something that has brought these people together. And it's their hatred of Jesus and viewing him as a threat to their system and their way of life. So these extreme political opposites, the, the conservatives and, the, and the, 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 the liberals, gather together to approach Jesus Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. That is what's called flattery. You don't pay attention to anyone else. You're a man of integrity. You're so cool. You're so good. We know that you are the best and the brightest. I learned about flattery when I was 16 and um, my older sister had come home from college with a, a professor and some other school friends. And um, the professor knew that I played chess, and so he deigned to play with me. And I was pretty good at chess for a 16-year-old kid, and I didn't lose. And so I sat down with him, and I made my first move, and he said, wow, that's a good move. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> and I made my second move, and he said, you've played this before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Sucker. <laughs> Did my third move. He says, wow. Mm. That's impressive. Now by this time, I'm making my fourth move. I don't even care what it is because whatever it was going to be, it's going to be great, obviously. So I don't even think about it. I make that move and he checkmated me. It's something called a fool's mate. It's done in four moves. I've used it a lot since then. But I sat there, and I don't think he was trying to be mean or anything else. I just think he couldn't resist the chance to, uh, to win the game, or whatever the case was. And so I looked early on and realized the degree to which flattery can play in and take you off your game. And this is what they're trying to do with Jesus, but he was much smarter than I was. But listen to what they're saying. He says, you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? They want to know, what is your flag? What is your stance? What is your opinion on something? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, with the knowledge that you have now, do you understand why this is a trap? Should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? If he says, yes, you should. Oh, you are a tool of the Romans. You sell out. You loser. Common people, kill him. He's a tool of Rome. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax. Cool. Uh, there's a few Roman soldiers that want to have a conversation with you right now. And he'd be executed for tax rebellion. It wasn't an honest question. They were trying to sort out what was going on to trap him. It says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Notice that word hypocrites. We'll come back to that. Why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, show me the coin you used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, the denarius was a silver coin 
with about a one-tenth, I think, troy ounce uh, um, weight to it. It was minted by Tiberius himself um, out of his own private mint. He did it for 20-some years. It was used for paying uh, his soldiers, for supplies, uh, for taxes. Everyone was required to use this coin to pay off their taxes. And like I say, it was worth roughly $100. It was worth a day's wages uh, for a person to have. And so he asked for this coin and asked to view the coin. Now, another thing about this coin is it was um, a really significant propaganda tool. You see, this coin, and let's take a picture of it real quickly. Here's the coin. I mean, it's not the actual coin. It's just an implication of the coin, okay? But this is the coin. And it said on the one side, it had the portrait of Caesar. And it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So he's saying Tiberius, basically son of God. On the other side, it had um, peace, the, the goddess of peace in recline, and the word Pontifus Maximus, or high priest. So this coin, generated by the emperor himself to pay all those items and for tax purposes, has his image on it and has the statement, son of basically God and high priest of peace. Now, the irony of this, first of all, we just have to stop for a moment and say, okay, so Jesus is now interacting with a coin that talks about the Son of God and the high priest of peace, while he himself is, in fact, the Son of God and the high priest of peace. That irony, just you have to soak on that one for a moment, okay? And just kind of sit there for a second, all right? But he asks for the coin. Why? He doesn't carry one of his own. So he's given a coin, and this is all happening on the temple grounds. All this is taking place in the temple grounds. Now, something should start to stir in your head as to why he called them hypocrites. Come on, think with me on this. What happened with the, with the standards that were outside the temple area, just overlooking it, and everyone freaks out, no graven images. But this guy, whoever it was, flips out a coin in the temple grounds that's bearing the image of the emperor who claims to be the son of God. And that's why Jesus says, you hypocrite. He goes a little further in then. And he sits here and says, okay, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Okay. There are two things that he's doing here. One we've already covered, I think, adequately for you. He's saying, whose image is this? That's evoking the statement of no graven images or who do you serve in essence. So he's saying, this is Caesar's, then give that to Caesar's. But he's also saying there's something else going on here of a deeper meaning. Are you serving God? He talks about an inscription. And um, to do this part, you'll have to understand uh, uh, something that was common for people in this time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the prayer that would start off any of their prayers. It's called the Shema Israel. And it says basically, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They'd begin every church service that way, every gathering that way. It was the central prayer. 
Now the rest of it says, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. These commands I give you today to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, discuss these scriptures and passages and commandments. He says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. So they put little leather boxes and, and they put these scriptures and they scribe them out and then they put them on their, their things. So whenever they look in the mirror, they move around, they bump things, they'd remember that. And then this part, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you go into Israel or into a Jewish home, you're going to find this uh, on the uh, outside of any doorpost that you see. This is a little case, and the cases change. They can be all sorts of different things. I've even seen some that are rocket ships, but kind of different cases. But inside the case is scribed out by a scribe on parchment. This Shema Israel, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is inscribed, or that inscription is there, and that's in the doorpost of every house. When you go to Israel and you go into a hotel, every hotel room, as you walk up to your hotel room, you're going to see this mezuzah, okay? This doorpost item sitting there. And an, and an observant Jew would touch that before going in. That inscription was there to remind them that there was only one God, and it wasn't Caesar. So when Jesus is coming along and is referencing to them whose image and whose inscription, well, they're saying Caesar's. But there's another message being sent underneath this that says basically God is supposed to be the only one that you serve. And that's why he says and makes the statement, render unto Caesar or give to Caesar what is Caesar's but give to God what is God's. This thing summed up now at the end of the whole conversation, and as I said, the irony of this whole thing is, is not lost. At the end of this whole thing, Jesus, when he's actually brought before Pilate at a later time, um, he's actually condemned as someone who told them to not pay taxes. And as you can clearly see from what he does in this passage, that's not what he does. What he's trying to say in this moment is that there are some things that are God's and those should not be messed with. There are some things of the practical, not even the practical, I wouldn't say, of the physical sense. Those things belong to Caesar. That can be our taxes, that can be our money, that can be our vote. But that vote should not take precedence over our commitment to Christ or even our commitment to one another as the body of Christ. Vote however you want, however you feel led and directed to do. But do not denigrate someone that's a Christian because of how they vote or how you vote. Have a flag. Have an opinion. I think that's a healthy dynamic. We all should have things that we've thought out carefully and that we've processed thoughtfully and that we can discuss reasonably and respectfully with other people. But don't ever let that flag or that viewpoint 
Stop you from coming to a table. Don't ever let that opinion or that position overshadow or obscure your loyalty and your commitment to Jesus Christ. And don't ever let that divide the body of Christ. And yes, I did think carefully about this. Originally I had a very beautiful chalice. But I subscribe to the Indiana Jones perspective. (laughs) That this would be more the cup of a carpenter. So, here's the things I'd ask you today. At the end of the conversation, do you have a closer affinity to those who share your same political views or to those who share your same theological convictions? Would you have more in common with a non-Christian who votes the way you do or with a Christian who doesn't? Where do your deepest loyalties lie? We are told in Psalm 20, verse 7, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, not the name of Obama, not the name of Trump. Not in the name of Tomko either. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Hebrews chapter 11, we're told the people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. We are citizens of another place. We carry a dual citizenship, and for this time, many of us are Americans. Not all of us in this room are. And we have a responsibility to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to give to him what is his. But 1 Peter chapter 3 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And so I ask you even further, where do your deepest loyalties lie? Who has your most fundamental allegiance? Do you feel a greater sense of pride when your candidate gets elected or when Jesus gets honored? Do you have a greater sense of joy when someone comes to your side of a political position or when someone embraces Jesus Christ? Do you more deeply align yourself with your political party or with the people of God? These are the kinds of questions that test our allegiance, but be careful to not pin your hopes on Caesar because Caesar, in the end, will always disappoint. You see... When Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's looking at these coins that Caesar had minted out of his own thing. It was his thing. He had stamped his image. It belonged to him. He minted those coins. He had a right to do so. And he demanded some of those coins in return, as was his right. After all, his image was stamped on what he had made. But God has minted the human soul. We're told in Genesis that you and I are stamped with the image of God. You belong to God. No one else has that claim. No political affiliation has that claim. No person has that claim. You and I were stamped in the image of God and we belong to him. Render to him what is his due. Give to Caesar whatever he demands. 
One final point. Around that table were 12 disciples. One walks away from the table. His name, interestingly enough, was Judas, probably named after Judas the Galilean or possibly Judas Maccabees who'd done another rebellion. So his name is linked with a hero of the revolution. It's believed very strongly that he was a zealot, that that was his political affiliation. We take that because he's referred to as Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the term Iscariot means from the Sakari. The Sakari were the zealots. And the zealots, what they would do is they would wear their cloaks and then they'd have their daggers inside. And when they came across somebody in the crowd that was supportive of Roman positions, whether they were Roman or whether they were Hebrew, they would take out the dagger, they'd knife them, then stick it back inside their cloak and melt away into the crowd. These Sakari, these zealots, these referred to as daggermen. Judas was very probably one of those daggermen. In fact, the term cloak and dagger comes from the Sakari. And so the table is met. But Judas can't let go of his flag. There are many who think that the reason he went and betrayed Jesus was an attempt to try to see his political means met, that it would force somehow a revolution. It would create the very thing he was hoping for when it failed to commit suicide. Vote for whoever you want to. Give and render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but do not give your worship. Do not give your identity. Don't let your flags or your opinions obscure the table of Christ. Don't get so caught up with your view and your opinion that you walk away from the table of Christ. When we did the groundbreak years ago, there was a song that meant something to us at the time. And I've asked if, if we could recall that moment again. And as we do this, I challenge you on your allegiance. We are citizens, most of us, of this country, and that's fine. But one day that citizenship will end. We're supposed to stand for something more. So, Father, I pray as we take this moment to consider our allegiance and what we have rendered, that by your Holy Spirit you'd challenge us this morning in response to your word, in your name, Lord. So in this year of elections and conflict and everything else, research, examine scriptures, think carefully and thoughtfully. Take a stand, have an opinion, have a position. But for God's sake, don't ever let it overshadow the table of the Lord. Don't let it cause division amongst the body of Christ. Deal with the subjects, but don't denigrate, dehumanize, dehumanize, and destroy people.
Let there always be a table that whatever your position and your background is, that we can gather, that we can talk as family and leave your dagger at home. Father, I pray for our nation. God, I lift up to you right now Nancy Pelosi and all of the House of Representatives, Mitch McConnell and all of the Senate, God. Father, I raise up to our president. I ask for each one of these individuals, Lord, that, that you would impart something of your wisdom and grace to them because as they govern, we are affected as your people. I raise up the governor, Lord God, of our state, the various leaders across the country, Lord God. I lift up brothers and sisters of ours who don't have the option and freedom we have in China or in Russia or in Iran. And Lord, I pray your grace. Guide us as your people. And Lord, when everything is said and done, we will render to Caesar what is rightfully his the things of this world. But Lord, we render to you alone our allegiance, to you alone our loyalty. In your image alone are we stamped and we belong to you and to none other. To none other. In the name of Jesus Christ, we claim and state this now. If you can agree, then say amen.